Good morning. God speaks to us in his word in Genesis 3, 8 through 9. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see you. How's everybody doing? Good deal. We have so far this year, we have now uh, baptized double um, the past two years combined, which is awesome. So I just, I don't say that to tell you guys we finally figured out the secret sauce or, you know, there's some trickeration or whatever it is that's, that we, we figured out how to say it better or do it better. It's just that the Lord himself is actually moving in our church. We're preaching the same gospel. We're preaching out of the same Bible. But God is moving in a powerful way in our church. And so I, what I want to invite you to do is um, now that we have moved into the fall, uh, we are into the fall. Fam- parents are saying, yeah, buddy, we know all about being into the fall because our kids have at least one million things to do every single day. And it'd be really easy in the fall, students as well, it'd be really easy in the fall to let the fall dictate um, your life. What I mean is this, let your calendars run your life and then your calendar or your kid's school or whatever it is, that becomes your God. You have to go and follow its lead, okay, instead of following the lead of Jesus. What I wanna invite you to do is look at your life and center your life. If you're a Christian, center your life around following Jesus. And let that be the thing that leads you, okay? And then all of a sudden what you're going to do is you're going to look at the fall as an opportunity for ministry to your neighbors and um, a way, a, another opportunity for you to, to kind of submit more to following the Lord. And so let's be on mission. Let's be ministers this fall. Let's not let our life minister to us. Let's minister to it. Can we do that together? Does it make sense? Come on now. I'm going to, you, I will stop, I'm just letting you know I will stop multiple times in this sermon today if y'all don't hear some feedback. We need feedback. We're about to open the book of Genesis, which is actually a little crazy to me, but I'm stoked about it because this book in itself, we start today, this book in itself, the first 11 chapters through the fall, it gives us, it sets up a foundation for literally what the rest of the Bible and the rest of life is all about. So what I want to invite you to today is to not just be listeners, but be active listeners. And by be active, I mean open your mouth and say yes, or in your heart at least, open your heart and receive the word of God today. It is alive. This book has a heartbeat. Somebody say amen. Amen. uh, There we go. See there? All right, I'm gonna pray for you and you pray for me and we'll jump right into this. God, I thank you for this book. I thank you that you wrote it. I thank you that it is the story of the redemption of man through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, I thank you that you are here with us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we ask for your power to be released in this room. We pray that we would receive. I pray that we would devour this book. Teach us to be people of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a buddy, um, who I've known for a little while, about six years. Um, and uh, he's, he's a doctor, actually a pulmonologist. And, um, and we became friends right before COVID hit. And if you know anybody that's in the medical profession or anybody here today that's in the medical profession, 
Um, COVID was really hard for everybody, but talk to a nurse, talk to a doctor that was working in an emergency room, was working on one of those COVID wings, which they all were. And it was uniquely hard for them. He was a pulmonologist, which meant that he focused on cardiovascular work, on lung function. And so you can imagine what COVID did to him. He was a very kind of, uh, he was a really fun guy to be around, but as far as the way he felt about things or his life, he was really hard to sort of crack the code on. And he was also Buddhist. And so for him as a Buddhist, as a practicing Buddhist, and he was more devout than a couple of Buddhist monks that I've met in my life. This was a devout man. He would pray and he would uh, do all of his meditations. And the idea of Buddhism for him was that if you do good things, you will get good things. That's called karma. Well, during the middle of COVID, I was sitting on my back porch one day and I would try to talk to him about Jesus. He knew I was a pastor. He had really bad experiences in Oklahoma, as you can imagine, being a Buddhist and having family that were even some of his brothers were preachers. He had some bad experiences. So his, I, it took a long time for me to just tell him, like, I'm not going to do anything weird, I promise. I, I just want to be your friend. And finally, he kind of broke down with me one day because he came over. I sit on the back of my porch one night after, you know, he's in his scrubs and his, he had one of those, maybe seen pictures of those who were wearing masks, like two, three masks that were so tight that it actually like indented their face. And he had that going. He looked at me and he goes, I mean, I'd never seen him act like this. Two times he broke down with me. This was one. He said, when does karma come through for me? When does it do the thing that it promised it will do? I've lived a pretty good life. I'm a doctor. I've saved people. When is it gonna come through for me? His worldview was that, that said, if you do good, you will get good. And what I told him, I said, you know, you know that we have a different worldview, but the problem is this, is that um, it never comes through. There's actually no such thing. And I, I don't, I told him with a little more grace than I'm telling you now, but I say, I hate this brother, but, I, but the reality is, it's like there's no such thing as you do good, you get good. When are you gonna start to see the world through the truth? That the world is not up and to the right. That we're not moving up and to the right. It's not this trajectory like we're trending the world is. Who here wants to take inventory of the way that you view the world? Look at the world around you. Is the world that you see getting better? This is why worldview is so important. Because the way that we view the world dictates how we perceive it and how we interact with it. His worldview was up and to the right. I told him, it's just never gonna get that way for you, man. And I'm sorry, but right now I should prove that. We're in a global pandemic, the likes of which none of us have ever seen. We don't even know what's going on. You're a doctor and you're supposed to know and you don't know what's going on. I tell you that to tell you this. Our worldview is not something that we think about a lot. It's not something that you think about a lot. How you view the world, the lens through which, the, the reality is this, our worldview is intrinsic to us. It's just, it affects the way that we interact with people and the way that we interact with our spouse and the way we interact with our job or our money or whatever it is. That is intrinsic to us, but we never think about it in that way. We never question, how do I view the world? The reality 
is that your worldview is everything. And most of us, even the ones that follow Jesus in the room, even the Christian in the room, at times struggle to have a biblical worldview. What we need more than anything else is a worldview that is built on the one who created the world and wrote this book for our good. We need a biblical worldview to match our biblical language. The way that we say things and know things and we've gone to church and we've done been in church, we've done led in church and we went to Sunday school, we know all, of, all the flannel graphs and the you know, overhead projectors, some of us older in the room. We know all of that stuff, we've been there, done it. I've served on the team. I'm proud to say I grew up serving on the puppet team. I literally, my mom ran the puppet ministry in my, we had a puppet ministry, First Church of God, Oak Grove, Louisiana. I served on the team. I know everything about it. That's going to come back to haunt me. I guarantee it, saying that out loud. We know everything there is to know. We've got biblical language. We know the biblical culture or whatever. But I'm not so sure that we have an actual biblical worldview at times. It's easy to say one thing and do another because how could we say a thing if our worldview is right and based on the Bible, how could we say one thing and then not do it? How could we identify with Paul who says, I do the thing I don't wanna do, I don't do the thing I do want to do. The apostle Paul said that in the Bible. How many of us would say that we believe that Christ was a man who bled and had a heartbeat and muscles and was sore and had to eat and had to go to the bathroom. He was a man. But then we would say that if we're a Christian, we believe that that man rose from the dead. To prove my point, this, how many of us would say, yes, I believe that, but then we don't live our lives like that. We need a worldview that's centered around the gospel, Jesus and Genesis. We're in a constant state of saying one thing and living another. Um, to root ourselves in a biblical worldview would mean that things find their proper place, which is this, relationships, parenting, jobs, money, and sex, all of it under the authority of God. And even more so, we stop looking to superior sounding things to name us. They themselves become molded into our worldview, those things, and I don't wanna harp on it, some of you are gonna roll your eyes, but things like technology where our, our, our identity becomes based on this thing, this phone or whatever it is or how much influence we have. A technological worldview where we see our leisure and our pleasure through a lens, a literal lens. You may not think that this affects you much, but I guarantee you it does because let me ask you this, when's the last time you just sat alone with your own thoughts? Do you even know what you think? I will, I don't want to heap shame on you, but I'm just proving a point because I'm in the same boat. How hard is it for you to sit through an hour and 15 minute church service? I'm preaching to myself, I'm telling you. YouTube is always there. Twitter's always there, whatever it is. College football scores, always there. I had a story that I want to share with you guys. I used to lead a, a program, discipleship program, and I took... I took some men, some younger men, on uh, to a retreat center. And it was one of those retreat centers, you know, that's like, it's one of those old church kind of campgrounds. Have you ever been to a church camp that they didn't, they just stopped cleaning in 1991 for some reason? 
all the furniture, everything. They said, man, we're going to try something. Let's just stop today, 1991, and uh, see how long we can go. That was this retreat center, and this was about eight, ten years ago. And um, I asked the guys, I said, all right, I didn't think, I thought all kinds of things. There's all kinds of roadblocks to what God wants to do. There might be, you know, hills and valleys during this time. We're going to do some intense work over God and yourself. Um, but the last thing I thought would cause a problem would have been me asking those young godly men to leave their phone in a drawer and not pick it back up until we leave in 36 hours. And sure enough, there's multiple men, <laughs> some of which are leading high level, some of which are ashamed <laughs> at this, but they would kept picking up their phone and they don't even know what they were checking. They just had to have it. And to ask those young godly men who are, some are now pastors, Hey, what do you think? What do you mean what I think? I can tell you what I read. I'm not concerned with that. I want to know what you think. What do you feel? We have a technological worldview. Our, the way that we view the world goes through the lens of which we perceive it and it comes through in our phone. We also can have a therapeutic worldview. Let me explain what I mean. When used rightly, not only is it helpful, it is recommended. That you go to counseling, go to therapy. We as a church are not against it. We are for it. We send people all the time, marriage help, whatever it is, individual help. They need to work through some stuff. Go. I'm not against it. The problem is, is that we've gotten to the place where technology and therapy or our therapeutic worldview actually defines us instead of helping us define us. When therapy or therapists are treated like Almighty God or they are elevated to the place of the wonderful counselor, then we've got an issue. Some of my favorite people I've ever met in my life, we've got many in this church that are therapists or counselors. One of the best things about them is they help you uncover who you are and get to the root of things so that you can know who you are more under God. We deify them to the category of God and we use things that I don't hate. These are not wrong. I'm not saying we should burn all of the, the personality tests, but we use things like the Enneagram or a number or whatever it is to tell us what we can and can't do and even decide whether or not you should. My personality number tells me that I'm actually excluded from opening my mouth and sharing the gospel with someone, which is actually intrinsic to everybody who would call themselves a Christian. You understand what I'm saying? We need this book to define us. We need to first go to this book and say, what, who does it say I am? What does it say that I must do? How's this with that kind of therapeutic worldview? The Bible says that you cannot follow Jesus unless you deny yourself. How does that line up? That's step one. If any man wants to come after me, he must deny himself. Do you understand what I'm saying? We need the Bible to define us. That's why Genesis is so important because it sets up the definitions that we need, how to be defined as people under Almighty God. It gives us the foundation for a biblical worldview and simultaneously tackles the bigger issues of today. Things like identity and sex and gender, our bodies, evil, sin, judgment, relationships, conflict, family dynamics, redemption, etc. And it also answers the question that everyone who's paying any attention and is not asleep on earth is asking. 
Why are things so messed up? Genesis is the start of the story of mankind and his creator. All of the rest of the Bible will be working out what is going to happen in these 1 through 11 chapters. All right. So for those of you who love to take notes, uh, you are going to love this sermon, especially the rest of the sermon, maybe as much as any you've ever heard because I'm about to give you a lot of them. We're about to go into the classroom together because first things first, before we jump into Genesis next week, we need to learn some things specific to the book. Context matters. Let me talk to you about how Genesis is written. It is written as the first book of five known as the Pentateuch. The author of the book of Genesis is mostly Moses. Obviously, Moses didn't write all that is in within the first five books of the Bible. He wrote most of it. I don't think Moses was, even him, was powerful enough to write about his own death. There were some editors, but mostly written by Moses. It's broken into two major sections. Genesis is 50 chapters. The first section is 1 through 11. The second is 12 through 50. In 1 through 11, which is what we're going to cover this fall, is the foundation of humanity, God, and the fall. And 12 through 50 is the fall at work. If you're unfamiliar with what the fall means, that's that place where man rebelled against God and started worshiping themselves. 12 through 50 is the fall at work. It's also the story of God's plan for redemption, the story for God's people. We are covering Genesis 1 through 11. This is important. Genesis was written for you and for me. However, it was not written to you and to me. Genesis was written to a specific group of people, Israel, the people of God. But that does not mean that it wasn't written for you. However, that lets us know that we need some context in order to understand how it was written for me. And you might have questions about that. You might be thinking, logically, that doesn't make any sense. How can you write something to someone but for someone else as well? And my answer to you would simply be this. You are not God. He's the only one that can do that. That's what this whole book is. Context matters. And the point of this book matters. The book was written to help us understand who we are, where we come from, how we got here, where we're going, where we're supposed to go, and most importantly, who God is. It's a book of identity, not a book of science. Some of you may be getting really excited about Genesis. You're like, finally, I'm going to discover, somebody's going to tell me whether or not God created the earth using the Roman calendar and a watch. Seven 24-hour days, finally I'm going to understand that. Here's the thing, is like, I don't, there, this book is not about that. If we tried to answer that question specifically, then we would be missing the point altogether, which is what we actually do with the Bible a lot of times. We will miss the forest for the weeds. Aaron Addison, who's one of our, other, our elders uh, at another congregation in Frontline, says it this way. The book of Genesis makes a theological argument about God, creation, and humanity, and salvation. And every story, poem, and genealogy is included and masterfully framed up to make this argument. It doesn't answer all your scientific questions because that was never the point. Rather, this book aims to shape your theological vision and worldview. It serves as God's introduction to humanity, revealing his character, goodness, and power to us. And it shows us what it means for God to be God. There are four categories, four primary categories in Genesis, specifically 1 through 11. There's the category of theology. 
the category of cosmology, the category of anthropology, and the category of soteriology. Let me describe those to you and explain them the best I can. Theology is the character and work and nature of God. It's the power of God. It's his characteristics, his attributes, his patience, his presence and plan. And while there are many theologies, theology is simply the study of that thing. We're going to talk about the study of God. We will learn God as creator. We will learn God as judge. We will learn God as redeemer. And then there's also cosmology, which is origin and ordering of the universe. This is very important. Cosmology. It is true that God created the heavens and the earth. He created the universe. But the way in which he orders all of that for his goodness and his glory is called the cosmos. The Bible talks about Jesus. We're going to talk a little more. It says he, up, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Uh, originally translated, that word says he upholds the cosmos. Jesus upholds the cosmos by the word of his power. It's why they were created, how they were created, all things, all stars and blades of grass and mites and animals and you and me, the cosmology. God has created those things for a reason, for a purpose in order to worship him. We're going to talk about other creation narratives that people will say they're similar enough. And sure enough, the Mesopotamians, the Babylonians, even the Epic of Gilgamesh, all creation narratives that in some ways are similar to that we see in Genesis. And skeptics would say, well, see, that proves that the account of Genesis is just another one to throw in the bucket. But according to Genesis and what scholars of the Bible would say is actually what's happening is those were built off of the account of Genesis. And the other thing that's so interesting <clears throat> is the way in which the means by which the earth and humanity was created from other gods and other accounts. It's either that there was a war, it's either that somebody was upset or that the gods somewhere created the earth, formed it, but then the, there's one that I read that then the earth was too much for them to manage. And so they needed human beings to be created in order to manage the thing that they created. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. They're powerful enough to create the earth, but not powerful enough to manage it. It's interesting, you see all of that. One couple accounts were that the earth was born out of war or boredom or this need to have people who are subjected to them. And you look at the account of the Bible and it's the only one where God created the earth to fill it for his temple and created people to live in harmony with him. That's different. Let's talk about that. The earth was created in seven days. You know God's instruction on building a temple? Seven days. God has created the earth for something more than just a place to have plants and pretty things. He's created the earth as his resting place, as his temple. I'm gonna talk a little bit about that. Gordon Wenham when referencing John Walton's work, that might be confusing, but Gordon Wenham is a scholar who referenced another scholar. John Walton's one of the foremost uh, sort of scholars, theologians on Genesis. He says this, more convincing is Walton's likening the creation of the world to the building of a temple. 
The world is not merely designed for human habitation, but as God's own dwelling place. God and man are intended to live together in total harmony. We're going to talk about that cosmology, why God created things the way that he did. And then anthropology, which is, of course, the study of people. Why were we made? How were they made? What happened? Why did God create all things except for this one thing that he made in the image of God? Why didn't God, why didn't God create dogs in his image? Some of y'all probably out there maybe think he did. He created man in his image. The image of God, man created for God and finding its identity in being priests of the temple. So get this, God creates the earth as the temple, the resting place, the place where his throne will sit for his presence, for his glory. He creates man in his image as the priest over the temple. You know what the Bible says about you and Peter? You are a royal priesthood, a people set apart, a holy nation. I love how the Bible lays this out because from Genesis to Revelation, we see God's work to create the earth, all things in it, to, for man to subdue it, for it to be a place of rest for him and to worship. And then at the end of Revelation, we're gonna talk about how Jesus is gonna come back one day and the way that he's gonna come back is to dwell with men. And then right in the middle, we have mankind always cultivating, always bringing things under the worship of God, including and especially ourselves. You remember the song, the hymn that we sing every Christmas, joy to the world, the, earth, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. That song was not written for Christmas. It was actually written for the second coming of Christ. Wenham says this, but for Genesis, the creation of humans is the climax to God's work in creation. However, the creation of humans is not the goal of creation. The goal is the divine rest on the seventh day because what happens when you see a throne somewhere? A king sits in it. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, when Christ returns to enter full and final rest, creates the earth, creates man towards the end. The final thing is he rests. It's the resting place of God. Genesis talks about we read it, we're gonna read it again. He walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day, his resting place. And then we have all of these moments and chapters and books in between. And then finally we get to Revelation and Christ is gonna return. And then here's what it says. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will himself be with them as their God. I love that the Bible is bookended by weddings. We have the initial wedding in Adam and Eve. And then we have the final wedding where the groom, God, comes to restore and take his bride in its resting place. The fall and the journey of man journey of man under God in a fallen world. This is our lives east of Eden from Genesis to Revelation. It's the study of anthropology, the study of people. And finally, soteriology, which is salvation and redemption. Salvation, 
through the blessing of God, salvation through the covenant of God, salvation through the shedding of blood. The story of Adam, the story of uh, Noah, the story of Jesus, and how it all points to, it all threads to the person and work of Christ, of Jesus Christ. Adam, who is the first man built in the image of God, made in his image, is put in a garden to form it, to till it, to cultivate it. And in the garden, Adam falls to that great sin. He becomes naked and ashamed. For the first time, he sees his shame. He denies God his authority. He puts the authority on him, worships himself naked, ashamed in the garden. Then we have a new man. When God floods the earth and there's one man in his family, Noah, Genesis 6, who survives the flood that God allows to survive the flood. And you're thinking, okay, great. Now we finally got our guy, Noah. Well, Noah gets drunk on a beach, has built a garden and in a tent in his drunkenness, if you know the story, something very shameful happens to him with one of his sons. How broken is that? That is messed up. That's in the Bible. Naked and shamed in a garden. Naked and shamed in a garden. And then we get to Jesus Christ, who in a garden is about to face the craziest thing any man has ever faced. And when he could have, and when you would have turned away from God, he says, not my will, but yours. In the garden of Gethsemane. And then he does something crazy. He does something that Noah and Adam could never do instead of them taking on and them becoming and shame within themselves, Jesus takes on your shame. You understand what I'm saying is like, we tend to think, okay, God the Father is the one who created everything, who, and then God the Son shows up, and then God the Holy Spirit, who we have now. No, look, they are distinct, but the same. The Trinity is three in one. It's not like the Son was absent from the earth when God formed man out of the dust. He had his hands in the ground too. The Bible you talks about in Genesis that the Spirit hovered the waters, three in one, they knew the day was coming when Jesus was going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Father, I don't want to do this, but not my will, but yours. That's the thing that Adam and Noah could not do. Not my will, but yours. In Revelation 21, we just read it. Jesus, the conqueror, the one who went and took your shame, your nakedness, he was stripped naked on the cross. That was supposed to happen to you. It did happen to Adam, it did happen to Noah. It's supposed to happen to us, but Jesus took theirs and ours. He will return one day to dwell with his people because of the work that he's done. Come on. This is the best news you'll ever hear in your life. The Bible talks about Jesus, it says, think about this, a baby who was born in a manger from Nazareth, I mean the equivalent of the back alley of a gas station, 
as he was born, as he was being born, this baby, according to the Bible, is upholding the universe, the cosmos, by the word of his power while needing to be fed. That's humility and power. My hope for us is that we understand God more. My hope for us in reading this book is that we understand ourselves more, that we see and live in awe and wonder of how beautiful and somewhat terrifying and powerful God is. That we let it shape our worldview, that we say, yeah, that this book and the God that wrote it is worth my life. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna let my view of the world be shaped by that God, Yahweh. What did we call Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us. Let me be shaped by that. We're gonna learn about who God is and who we are and why we exist and why the world is so messed up and what God has done to fix it. We're gonna learn about his plan all along what our identity is as people of God. And my question for you today is this. Genesis 3, 8, 9 says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, notice that they don't have a name anymore, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? This lets us know that God had an appointment with them. To walk in the garden in the cool of the day, that's what they did. And now for the first time ever, they're naked and ashamed and hiding and they've lost their identity. So the question for you today is the same question for them. It's this simply, where are you? Where are you at? And also, who are you? I would assume that there's several people in this room that say, I've known God, I've walked with him, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I don't know where I am. I don't actually know that. I've walked with God, I know what that feels like to walk with God in the cool of the day. I, I know that too, and for myself, it's like, I, I don't know, I can't say that about my, my life right now. Where are you? God was not asking about their physical whereabouts. That wouldn't make sense. He was all-knowing. He knew exactly where they physically were. What he was asking was their spiritual, relational whereabouts. We are supposed to be walking together. I created this earth so that you and I could walk together. Where are you? Invitation for a lot of us in this room is to perk up and ask ourselves the hard question. Where am I? Where is God? Where's my relationship with him? Do I have it in me to submit to his power? Do I have it in me to say, God, whatever you wanna do, do it? I don't always have that in me, I promise you, but I think the start for us today is like, I want to walk with God. I wanna walk with him in the cool of the day. And I'm gonna come to this table today if I'm a Christian, and this is gonna be my act to say the Lord, um, I wanna walk with you.
Let's stand together. If you're serving the table,